Good morning, 1 Samuel 18, 6 through 16. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel, singing and dancing, to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing his lyre, as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all of Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. Thank you so much for reading. Gwen, I hope you keep your Bibles open there in 1 Samuel 18. Sometimes stories work a little backward from what we expect. And in this story, although Saul is the one throwing spears at David, it's actually Saul that's afraid. It just reminds us in the Bible as well as in life, sometimes things are not always as they seem. It, it points us to look deeper in Scripture and ask, what is God doing? Sometimes we don't always see clearly who are the winners, who are the losers. And what I find is we're going through the book of 1 Samuel, particularly this story of David. It's like an action movie where two characters, like there's, there's two main characters and They seem to be destined to have this conflict, and that is Saul and David. I want us to look at Saul. I mean, Saul and David are heading in very opposite directions, but I want us to spend a little bit of time this morning looking at Saul and then spend a good bit of time looking at David. When we look at Saul, especially in the passage that even Gwen read a moment ago, I think he helps us understand the insanity of sin. When you look at Saul's life, particularly where it is in this, you see the insanity of sin. I don't know of a sadder character in the Bible than Saul, who starts off kind of small in his own eyes, but something goes wrong. And he begins to rebel and reject God. He seems to get so big that he has really no use for God. What's interesting in the passage we read and really even going forward is the writer of 1 Samuel kind of pulls back the curtain and we get a glimpse into something that we would have no way of knowing. We get a glimpse into the very thoughts and intentions and motivations of Saul. I I can't say what your motivations are. I can't say what your intentions are, but we, we get to see into Saul's mind and his heart of what's going on. And the picture is not a pretty one. We see the insanity of Saul's sin, particularly the sin of envy. 
We can even watch it grow. And, and the Bible tells us that envy makes the bones rot. And you just kind of watch, you watch Saul's downfall. Even in this passage, in verse 8, he's angry and incensed because the people are saying, David is 10 times better than Saul. And when you're motivated by just what other people are saying, when you keep your kind of ear to the opinion polls and those begin to turn against you, life seems to be not worth living and Saul finds that. He thinks in verse 8, Saul thinks David's going to have my job and it says in verse 9, he eyes him, he keeps his eye on him from that day forward. He'll look at where David is and he will be afraid. There's like a toxic formula in Saul's life. It's toxic not just for him but for us. It's envy plus fear plus rebellion against God leads to some very, very dark places down a dark, destructive path. We're going to read, we won't read all of 18 and 19, but I do want to just highlight the storyline so that then we can kind of dig in and understand Saul and David. Because in 1 Samuel 18 and 19, you, you, you see David in the king's court and, and even the passage that was read earlier, he's dodging spears that have been thrown at him. Then Saul, just to get David out of his sight, like puts him in charge. He redeploys him, gives him a new assignment. Just he doesn't want to have to look at David every day. But then another idea comes to him. Is there a way in which he, Saul, can take David and put him in a very difficult place where maybe the Philistines would kill him and he could just relax and not have to worry about the blood being on his hand? He has ideas. Even, even his family, Saul's family, will be kind of pawns in his scheme. He says, David, you want my, my daughter to marry? There's advantages of being the king's son-in-law. He changes his mind on daughter number one, but finds out daughter number two loves David. And he says, David, if you, if you want my daughter, how about, how about killing a hundred Philistines? He has this plan that maybe I'll just get lucky enough. David will go off into battle. And I the Philistines, surely. What are the odds that he could survive that kind of hand-to-hand fierce combat? David comes back having killed 200. All of Saul's plans backfire. It escalates. There's a cabinet meeting in chapter 19, the first verse. Saul's got his advisors, his servants, Jonathan's present, and he just makes a point blank clear. I'm, I'm going to kill David. We don't need him we're going to finish him off. And David is rightfully scared, but Jonathan, Jonathan, a, a, a wise man, Saul's son, speaks words of truth and wisdom to his father and brokers a peace deal. And Saul briefly like changes his mind and David comes back into Saul's house only for a, a few verses later for there to be more trouble and more jealousy and more anger by Saul toward David. And again, the spears come and David has to escape. Then Saul, in chapter 19, also tries to assassinate David in his home, kind of has assassins laying watch for when David would come out, he will have him killed. But David's wife, who happens to be Saul's daughter, orchestrates an escape. When I, when I say the insanity of sin, what you watch Saul doing is you watch his envy and his rebellion you watch him pursue that to his own destruction. It's crazy. You watch how he masks it at the beginning, but then it grows out of hand and he loses respect and he, he's never the same. 
He loses esteem. He loses the trust of his people. He loses his own family. And you ask, like, why do you continue on this path to have David eliminated? Why do you keep going down that path? And there is no good reason. But, but I, can, I can evaluate Saul's sin, but all I have to do is think of my own life and think of our lives. And we go, why, why would we continue in sin? When we know it hurts people. Sometimes sin, there, there's no excuse for it. There's no good reason for it. Why would you continue to stay in your stubbornness just to prove a point? Despite the fact that it is killing relationships around you. Why why would you invest hours and hours and hours in pornography knowing, knowing it's enslaving you? Why would you continue to pursue that? Why would we think that acquiring more and more stuff that we cannot afford, but just to kind of keep a certain image, why would we think that's okay? If we pause for a moment, we would say, this is crazy. This is crazy for me to be this bitter. It's crazy for me to to just have so little respect for parental authority that God has placed in my life for my good. It's crazy to go against that. It's crazy to rebel against God. It's crazy to abuse substance. It's crazy to give my whole life to pleasing people. Sometimes we have to see very clearly that sin is crazy. It doesn't make sense. The way of the treacherous is their ruin, Proverbs thirteen fifteen says. It really makes no sense to wreck our lives, shake our fist at God and say, I'm going to do it my own way. I'm going to do it my own way. And it's also crazy for Saul's thought processes. It's crazy because he's intending things for harm, but they're they're turning out in the very opposite way he intends. Saul means David harm, but every time he does something to David, it ends up seemingly like it turns out good for David. David's promoted. David advances. David becomes respected. It's like the Proverbs 26, whoever digs a pit will fall into it and a stone comes right back on top of you. Or James 1, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin and sin when it is fully grown brings death. We have to take this portrait to Saul because there may be paths we're on that are actually so self-destructive. And we think, well, I'll just try to do my best. I'm a tough person. I'm a good person. I'm a moral person. I'm a respectable person. I'm just going to try to be the best version of myself. But, but wait a minute. You, you don't have enough strength to guard your lives from going off the rails. I don't either. You're going to need someone more powerful. You're going to need a new heart. What can keep your sin in check? Do you have enough willpower? Only God can remake your heart. Only God can give you a clean heart, a pure heart. Only God can give you the Holy Spirit, which will able to keep, keep you from stumbling. For any hope of spiritual survival, we need the Lord to guard us. And that's exactly what Saul does not have. He has turned his back on, on the Lord. So again, we're watching Saul's life. And from Saul, you see so clearly the insanity of sin. But then there's this picture of David. And three times in 1 Samuel 18, a phrase is repeated. And that phrase is in verse 12. Saul is afraid of David because the Lord was with him. And then verse 14, 
David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. In verse 28, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, what a contrast. And instead of the insanity of sin with David's life, we see the presence of God. We see the presence of God. The Lord is with him. This is evident to people around him. God is with David. It reminds me of Joseph. It reminds me of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. We should want this. But what does it mean that the Lord is with David? What does it mean that he has the presence of God? Well, one thing it means in this passage is that this God who is sovereign, who is with David, orchestrates the circumstances so much so that David is successful. What does it mean that the Lord is with David? It means in this passage, he is successful. You look at verse 5 of 1 Samuel 18. David went out and was successful whenever or wherever Saul sent him. Verse 14, and David had success in all his undertakings. Verse 30, the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul. 1 Samuel 19 and verse 8, even the next chapter. David goes out and fights with the Philistines and strikes them with a great blow. David was successful. The Lord was at work in his life. He could look and see a success here and another one here and another one there. And I think it's helpful for us to take inventory when we see God pouring out his blessings on us to realize this didn't come from from myself. This is God's hand in my life. Sometimes you have to bow your head and thank God when when you look at the things God has given you. And we don't. We take it for granted too often. But sometimes you, you sit in, in your house, maybe it's early in the morning, you, and you begin to reflect. God, look at all the things you've given me. Look at the family. Look at my spouse. Look at my friends. Look at my neighbors. Look at, look at the, even the, the stuff you've given me. Look at the skills. Look at the talents you've given me you begin to see how many things come from God. And it's right for us to take a moment and say, God, how good you've been to me. You are with me. And you have blessed my life so richly. David sees that. The Lord is with him. And that means that David, in this story, is successful, but it also has meant David has approval of others. What struck me as I read and reread and reread is all the people that seem to love David. So you, you are in verse 3 there, and David, Jonathan makes a covenant with David because he loved David. The presence of God is attached to approval in favor of others here. It says in verse 5 that when David is in charge over the men of war, this is good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. In verse 16, it says, all Israel and Judah loved David. Verse 20, now Saul's daughter, Michael, loved David. In 1 Samuel 18, 30, it ends with his name was highly esteemed. Everyone seems to love David and care for David and be for David. Everywhere he looks, he's seeing people that love him. What a gift that is. As a matter of fact, I I think it's almost impossible for me to conceive of the Christian life 
without people that are with you and for you and encouraging you all along the way. This is a gift. And when you look at David's life and you say the Lord is with him, you, you read these passages and you see the success he enjoys and the favor he enjoys. These are gifts from God, not just because, and David was really lucky, or David just knew how to manipulate all these things in his favor. That's not the way scripture presents it. Presents it as the Lord is with him. But we have to be very careful at just that moment to make sure we take in the full picture of 1 Samuel 18 and 19. We can see that the Lord is with him when he's successful and we can see the Lord is with him when he has favor of people. But running parallel to the apparent successes and favor that David has, maybe better said, not just parallel, but kind of intertwined with all of these successes, is David fleeing and running for his life. And we can't afford to, to miss that. You see, the truth we most likely need to hear this morning is that God will be just as much with David when he doesn't have all the approval of people and when he doesn't have the success in the eyes of everybody. We need to take note of that. Mixed with the successes David's enjoying and the approval he's enjoying are verses like this in 1 Samuel 18, 11. Saul hurled the spear, but David had to evade him twice. Or in 1 Samuel 19, 10, David fled and escaped that night. In verse 12 of that same chapter, he fled away and escaped. Verse 18, David fled and escaped. Do you, do you hear it? Evaded, fled, escaped, eluded. That doesn't sound like success and approval. And then you begin to ask, well, how does David survive? How does David survive? How does he elude Saul when multiple spears are coming at him? How does he survive when there are assassins commissioned by the king to come after him? How does he survive? And there is a short answer, and it's the same answer given again and again. The Lord is with him. The Lord is watching over his life. The Lord is protecting him. Not only is David seeing success and approval, but he's seeing the way of escape, and it happens because God is his refuge. It happens in surprising ways that could only be orchestrated by God. So I don't know. We don't have, like special insight into this story. I don't know if God in his sovereignty gave David good reflexes so that when the spears are thrown, he knows how to get out of their way real quick. But we do know who would have thought Saul's son, the crown prince, would be the one telling David, you better get out of town. My dad's coming after you. Who would have thought it would be Saul's daughter, Michael, that would, that would be deceptive and that that deception would be part of God's overall plan to keep David alive. Who would have guessed this? Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. We'd be wrong to assume that it's only when we have success and favor that God would be with us, that God is really with us. And yet how easy it is for us to assume that. We get the promotion and we can see God's on my side. But we, we don't get the promotion. And we go, where's God? We get the report and everything looks fine. And we think, see, this is, this is the way God takes care of us. 
But then we get the report that everything's not okay. And we legitimately, we have questions. We learn something valuable when we unmask a false teaching that can creep into our hearts that if you're really walking with God, you'll have health and you'll have wealth and you'll have prosperity, you'll have favor and good fortune and everyone will love you. God may give you all of those things. God may give them to you for a decade. God may give them to you for a season. But he also may take it away. Ask Job. Ask Moses. Ask Joseph. I love this paragraph that I came across. Actually, a sentence. Sometimes the clearest evidence that God has not deserted you is not that you're successfully past your trial, but that you are still on your feet in the middle of it. And David's on his feet in the middle of trial after trial after trial after trial because God is with him. And the fact is, life is pretty mixed. I'm so grateful for stories like this that don't tell like half-truths. They tell the full truth that life is pretty mixed. And there may be days you wake up and go, my goodness, I have all this success and I have blessings beyond measure and I feel like I'm fleeing and this part of my life seems to be crumbling even as this part is going extraordinarily well. And I I look at all of this and say, how can this be? God, what are you doing? This kind of story leads us into those places and we can look at the blessings and we can look at the difficulties and the trials and we say, the Lord is with me. The Lord is present. It's a chaotic scene for David. And yet in the middle of it, he sees God is with him. God is for him. I wonder when I, when I read these passages, there's really a voice that's missing. And that is like, what is going on in David's head? Last week, I told you when you go to a, a story like this, it's important to track the dialogue. But David says barely anything in 1 Samuel 18 and 19. You ask yourself, what, what was he thinking? He doesn't know the end of the story. He doesn't know, oh, this is God's means of getting it. I mean, he doesn't know that. What's going on in his heart? But these chapters don't really answer that question. But when you study another part of Scripture that my attention was drawn to, you find all these writings of David, they're called Psalms. And many of the Psalms have inscriptions. So one of those is Psalm 59. And Psalm 59, the inscription says this. So it's, it's actually a song to the choir master. And it seems like it's, to, uh, I looked over there. We don't have our screen up there. According to the, the tune, Do Not Destroy. So there were several of, these, several of these songs that were to the tune, Do Not Destroy. And notice when this was written, it's a mictum of David when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. You know when this psalm was written? At exactly the moment we're reading. So David, please tell us what's going on in in your heart as you're watching success and fleeing for your life. How How are you putting those things together? What are you saying to God? What are you saying to God when the enemies are real in your life? What are you saying to God when, when 
you're evaluating his character, what are you saying when you're thinking about how is he present or not present in your life? And this is what he says in Psalm 59. Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from those who work evil. And save me from bloodthirsty men. For behold, they lie and wait for my life. Fierce men stir up strife against me. For no transgression of, or sin of mine, O Lord. For no fault of mine they run and make ready. It's interesting as I read through the Psalms, sometimes I'm, you know, you read the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, and that's beautiful and poetic. And then you read these Psalms where like, Lord, take care of my enemies. Take them down. You think, my goodness, this is like not even PG-13 violence. I mean, he's going for R-rated violence and and how he's asking for the Lord to deal with his enemies. But when you piece it together with such a real story like 1 Samuel 18 and 19, you begin to go, okay, I completely understand why he is crying out to God in this way. David takes his real-life situations and he doesn't just complain or gripe or whine or find himself in despair. He actually names them, doesn't he? He names his enemies. He names the circumstances and he takes them to the Lord. We too can name our circumstances and take it to the Lord. He says, awake, come to meet me and see. You, Lord God of hosts, you're the God of Israel. Rouse yourself to punish all the nations. Don't spare any of those who treacherously plot evil. Each evening, It's like the assassins, they come back, they're howling like dogs and prowling about the city. There they are, they're bellowing with their mouths and with swords in their lips for who they think will hear us. But you, O Lord, laugh at them. You hold all the nations in derision. O my strength, I will watch for you, for you, O God, are my fortress. Now notice what David does. Look at his view of God. We don't hear it in 1 Samuel 18, 19, but we see it so clearly here. For my God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God won't let me. God will let me look and triumph over my enemies. Kill them not, lest my people forget, but I'll make them totter by your power and bring them down, O Lord, our shield. It's like, listen, God, for the sin of their mouths, the words of their lips, let them be trapped in their pride for the cursing and lies that they utter. Consume them in wrath, consume them till they are no more, that they may know God rules over Jacob to the ends of the earth. Each evening they come back, howling like dogs and prowling about the city. They wander about for food and they growl if they don't get their fill. But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. And if this psalm wasn't personal enough, listen to the way it ends. You wonder, why, you wonder why David could have such strength in the middle of all this. He says, for you have been to me a fortress. You've been to me a refuge in the day of my distress. It's not just God has strength, but oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, oh God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. God's strength and God's love was good news for David and it's It's just good news for us. In this side of the cross, we see things even in a clearer focus than David could have seen them. God cares for us. God's watching over us. And if he didn't hold back his own son, Jesus Christ, but Jesus Christ went to the cross, was hunted down by his enemies, and even would say, my God, my God, why have you 
forsaken me. If that was for us, then we are more than conquerors. Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love that God has for us in Christ. In strength and in love, Jesus rises from the dead and he tells his disciples, all authority in heaven and earth is mine so you can go into all the world and make disciples and I am with you always. We live in the good news of these psalms of strength and love. But I want to close with a couple questions. How long has it been since you named your troubles, your care, your grief, your pain, you named it before the Lord and you took it to him. How long has it been since you labeled it as clearly as David labels it in prayer to God and says, here's what it is? How long has it been since you have carefully brought the attributes of God to mind And how long has it been since you said it, since you've sung it, since you wrote it down and said, God, you're this, you're this, and because you're this, then that means something to me in this situation. How long? How long has it been since you realized that God's strength is personal, that God's love is personally directed to you? When was the last time you verbalized, like David did here, you are with me and you are for me? And if God is for us, who could be against us? How long? Can I give us just some space to do that? To name our trouble, to look at the character of God, and to bring that to bear and feel that more personally, maybe than we felt it in a while. Let's pray. As we pray, Lord, each one of us you can hear. And so now we name troubles and concerns and problems and grief to you. And we confess our weakness in this. We don't know how things are going to turn out. We're scared. We're afraid. We're vulnerable. We're weak. We don't have all of all the solutions in mind, but we realize you are strong, a fortress, a refuge. You love us. And this morning we take to heart that what you did on the cross was for us. We take to heart what you did in rising from the dead was for us. We remind ourselves you sent your Holy Spirit to us. We remind ourselves of the promise you will come back for us. We remind ourselves you are with us. You will never leave us. You will never forsake us. Impress that on our hearts today. Give us words like David to say. Help us even now as we sing. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.